Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the transfer window. The podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our transfer market insiders and pundits extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, the transfer window may have shut, but the recriminations of its failures are still very much on the agenda when it comes to Manchester United. Do they need a director of football? Does Jose Mourinho have enough to challenge? Will Paul Pogba leave before the European window slams shut? All your questions answered as we take a deep dive into the Old Trafford Club's window. Daniel Levy is tied down as main men on Golden Handcuffs deals and has every reason to see this transfer window as a Spurs success story. But does Maurizio Pochettino share his optimism? With no signings and a delayed stadium project, we ask if Spurs are a club in stasis. And Fulham, Everton, Wolves and Brighton have spent big money over the summer. We take you inside the deal-making and show you how the smaller clubs are able to become big spenders. Okay, Duncan, we've been inundated with comments and questions from Manchester United fans on our Twitter account. They were ninth in gross spend in this transfer window behind clubs such as Wolves, Everton and Fulham. Is that good enough for a club of their size? And what's the future for Jose Mourinho and Manchester United? Well, I think Jose Mourinho is very clear and has been very clear for the last couple of months that that isn't good enough for a club of their size if the club of that size wants to take on Manchester City um, to, and take the Premier League title back. That's what he's been trying to underline for weeks and months Um well, for over half a year since he handed in, uh, delivered the transfer list of positions that needed to be strengthened um, to make them properly competitive for the Premier League title. Uh, what was delivered? One of the positions, the key positions, the midfielder, was delivered. A uh, 55 million euro initial signing of Fred, which he's very happy with. Um, and then a a young right back, a 19-year-old, uh, at what should turn out to be a bargain price, uh, 22 million euros. And if you compare that to some of the, the signings that have happened elsewhere in the Premier League for um, for players with probably with uh, significantly less potential, also a good signing, but one that will need development within the team. Um, and then this kind of farcical situation where a centre-back an experienced leader centre-back was identified as being central to improving a defence that Mourinho feels he's had to protect with his formations for the last two seasons. 
um, not being able to play as, as attacking against better teams as he would like to because he's got to cover up for his defenders. And I, I think most people in football can see that Manchester United central defenders aren't good enough, the experienced ones in particular. Uh, the, the central defender wasn't delivered. And what do we see on the morning after the transfer window close, closes? We see a briefing from the Manchester United board about why a centre-back hadn't been signed, handed out to three broad, uh, broadsheet newspapers and the BBC, um, going along pretty familiar lines of these targets were all too expensive, or we tried to get a target such as Jerry Mina in Barcelona, um, complicated the deal um, uh, with the conditions they were asking for, and the agent complicated the deal. Uh, with the agent's fees he was asking for. We tried to get Diego Godin, but Godin used our approach um, to get a new contract from Atletico Madrid. And we would really, it's not that we don't want to sign a centre-back, we want to sign a really good one, and we'd be happy to pay over £100 million, 100 million pounds for Rafael Varane if he was available. And, um, and Edward Woodward sat down, we'd like you to know, Edward Woodward sat down with Florentino Perez just a few days ago over breakfast and asked him if he'd sell Rafael Varane and were, were disappointed to find out that he wouldn't. Um, that briefing I just find uh, ridiculous and absurd because Manchester United wanted to get that story out that they tried to sign basically the most expensive, the most talented centre-back in European football and they tried to do it a few days before the English transfer window concluded. That, that's not how you do a deal of that magnitude. I mean, I think anyone in football would talk, tell you that Rafael Varane is not available for sale. You would not get him from Real Madrid this window because he is too good and they don't need to sell players of that dimension. But moreover, if you want to do that deal, if you want to even try and do that deal, you get it set up with the player and the agent months in advance. Find out if the player is ready to push to leave the club and try and take advantage of that and, and put the, the operation in action early um, to to get the player. And this is something, you know, Manchester United have made errors on in the Edward Ward era previously. They've been embarrassed in trying to sign Sergio Ramos from Real Madrid. They've been embarrassed in trying to sign Diego Alcantara from, uh, from uh, Barcelona. Um, we've seen this process of them, they, they embarrassed themselves trying to get Gareth Bale at the last minute when he was on his way to Real Madrid. We've seen this sort of naivety in the transfer market since Edward took over, Edward Woodward took over as executive vice chairman. And it seems he hasn't learned that lesson and wants to brief that he's still doing, prepared to do those kind of deals because he thinks that will go down well with the media and the Manchester United fan base. I, I honestly find it incredible that that's the position Manchester United are in in a transfer market in a season where they, everyone knows they have a major challenge ahead of them, both domestically and in Europe. One of the foundational problems for Jose Mourinho since he arrived at Manchester United has been the Glazer family themselves. Um, when they negotiated the terms of Sir Alex Ferguson's uh, departure, uh, Fergie said that he would only leave if he could choose a successor, which he did, obviously, as we all know, the chosen one, David Moyes. Uh, he was not the choice of the Glazer family. Um, and the two brothers, two Glazer brothers who are directly involved in administrative positions at Old Trafford, wanted uh, to be more, um, let's just say, have a bigger say in the football department. And by that, I mean in transfers, both in and out. Uh, they therefore starved Moyes of funds, uh, effectively set him up to fail because they didn't want him because uh, he wasn't their choice. 
They then panicked and brought in Louis van Gaal, who made a complete mess of things, especially in terms of transfers and transfer spend. We saw the mess that Mourinho had to try and clean up when uh, he arrived. And now, after the initial period of having effectively appointed a manager in Sir Alex's uh, image in Mourinho, i.e. a football manager, one who wants to take control of all aspects of the football club, um, which was exactly what they wanted to avoid and what they wanted to change, they've now reverted to their original plan, which is to interfere, interject into the transfer policy. Therefore, they are citing um, behind the scenes, well, okay then, um, Mr Mourinho, you're one of the centre half, but you bought um, Lindelof and Bailly, and they've proven not to be good enough for you. Um, you've been playing other players like Jones and Smalling, who you inherited instead. And again, put that up against injury and form, you've always got to take into account the practicalities from the manager's point of view. Um, but still, there persists a view in the boardroom that Mourinho can't be trusted with transfers, which is ridiculous. This is the most successful manager in terms of titles you know, in England in terms of titles won, obviously Guardiola being the most successful in terms of titles won around uh, in his clubs. So Mourinho's got a real problem because there is a resistance to him and to his spending uh, desires in the boardroom. Uh, hence why we've seen a standoff. Hence why we saw Mourinho say after the um, victory over Leicester City last Friday night that his position should be degraded to that head coach because he's no longer a manager in the traditional sense. And remember, Mourinho is someone who, who's grown up in English football in his two stints at Chelsea and now is third year at Manchester United with the whole philosophy of the old-fashioned manager who does control everything from what tea is served in the training ground to what centre-half is bought in the transfer window. And um, you know, people will ask, well, why doesn't he just walk away? Well, the reason he's walk away is it's not because he can't. He could, do, he could walk away in the next hour or next week because he is financially secure for the rest of his life. And that's not in question. The fact is that Mourinho is a serial winner. He's not a quitter. And he knows that he will be judged by winning or not the Premier League title at Manchester United. And that's why he remains in place. That's why he will battle on. And that's why he will draw on his resources from the training performances that we saw him give with such effectiveness at Porto, Chelsea and Inter Milan to produce champions at those three clubs out of what was effectively probably a lesser squad in terms of quality and talent than their rivals. And I think this is the biggest challenge in his career. It was, it was I thought, both tongue-in-cheek but also um, ironic that uh, he gave that press conference where he said that no one talks about me coming second last year. It was one of the best seasons of my career to come second. We all know that Mourinho doesn't like coming second. He was making a point that with the resources he had compared to Pep Guardiola, coming second was an achievement. So what we know about Mourinho is that he... He will not quit. He will not walk away from Manchester United because he knows he'll be judged on winning the title at Old Trafford. Um, he's won the title in every club that he has been manager of. And it's not about the money. It's about him succeeding now. And he'll do so in spite of what he sees as the obstacles put in his way. Um, but I would prepare myself, Duncan, yourself, Johnny, even the Butterfly Meister, 
and all our listeners out there for a season ahead where Mourinho will not uh, stop talking about the fact that he's up against it and that if he wins, it will be in spite uh, of the club rather than uh, with their support. One of the other issues affecting Manchester United is the form and attitude of Paul Pogba. Now, he had an excellent performance against Leicester, but afterwards he came out with some interesting comments, Duncan. He did. Um, I, mean, I think if it was following uh, a social media comment that he made and he was asked about being happy at the club and, and throughout it all, um, didn't mention the manager's name. Um, and I think was asked whether he was happy and, and then said uh, something along the lines of there are, there are things I can't say. If I say them, I'll be fined. Um, and I think I think that caught um, Josie Mourinho by surprise, um, that, uh, that having made him captain, having got Pogba to play and Pogba volunteered to play in the game without having um, played a single pre-season match, um, delivered... A very good performance, um, particularly at the start of the game, but in general, a good performance. And I think um, there was a lot uh, of good signs about what a partnership of Pogba and Fred could bring to Manchester United's midfield in that Leicester game, in that there was uh, a range of passing and a quality of passing, a braveness from both players, particularly with Fred prepared to, to hit um, tight angle passes through difficult spaces and and knit the midfield together, which is exactly what they're they were he's been brought in to do. Um, I thought that looked good for United. I think the the main problem they had was that when it hit the forward line, it tended to bounce straight back. And um, again, we saw Marcus Rashford, and it shouldn't probably shouldn't be too hard on Rashford because again he had, had a full preseason himself, but a familiar problem of the ball coming to him and not being able to to hold it in and control it, always wanting to try and go in behind the centre backs. And I think a lot of Manchester United's play fell down because of the forwards there, but. I think there was a surprise that Pogba had rattled the cages, if you like, post-match, given that there'd been the win, he'd been the captain, it had gone well, he'd accepted uh, playing, he'd volunteered to play. So all, all the um, the positive elements were there from the manager's perspective. The manager was very um, positive about him in his post-match press conference. But I think if you look at it, um, as we discussed in the podcast when the story came out, the Barcelona interest, Barcelona offer for Paul Pogba was something that had been manufactured by Pogba's agent, Mino Raiola. Um, Raiola knows the transfer window is still open. He knows that there is still plenty of media discussion to be had about Pogba leaving in the next few weeks, even if he's aware that Manchester United will not sell him and have said directly, the player is not for sale both to Barcelona and to uh, the agent. But that doesn't stop um, Raiola from keeping him in the news. And from that perspective, perhaps what Paul Pogba said to the press post-match um, was a very handy way of ensuring that the story did remain in the news and there was still discussion over whether Pogba was happy with Mourinho and how he would perform for him during the season and whether the outcome would be a transfer away either uh, this month in January. You'll have seen reports talking about Barcelona holding their fire to try and replicate what they did with Philippe Coutinho um, last January or next summer. Um, so don't expect that story to go away because it's in 
um, Mino Raiola's interest for that story to stay on the media agenda. Well, the agenda from Raiola as well, Duncan, is very clear. Um, and it's one that you know, time has told the same story over, over you know, the last few decades. What Raiola has is a client who has never been hotter. He's got the central figure, arguably, in France's World Cup victory uh, as a client. He has willing suitors who would be prepared to test Manchester United in terms of a fee for him. He's got a client who's not entirely 100% happy at the club he's at or with the manager that he's playing for. And we shouldn't forget also that this was uh, catalyzed by um, the fact that a player came in on a bigger salary than Pogba. Pogba was no longer uh, the highest earner at the club um, and felt slighted by that. And I think Mina Raiola, obviously, in his interest, to tell his client that uh, you are better than Alexis Sanchez, you are more of the main player than Alexis Sanchez, and therefore you should be earning more than he does. Um, and so should this end up, and here I am speculating, obviously, um, with Pogba staying beyond the end of August deadline in Europe, then Pogba, uh, Raiola's agenda is to get Pogba a upgrade in his contract, which sees him become, once again, the best paid player at Manchester United. Um, and if that happens, I think you'll suddenly see peace break out um, between Raiola and Manchester United and between Pogba and Jose Mourinho. Duncan, in terms of the mismanagement that seems to be going on behind the scenes at Manchester United, is there an argument that has been put forward by a few people, I must say, uh, recently, that United require someone who is the spider in the web, the director of football, who's going to organise all these things behind the scenes in a way that Edward Ward just can't. Look, there's no question that the Manchester United board, as it stands, is desperately short of football experience. So if you go through the, the real board, i.e. not the, the extended football club board, which includes Bobby Charlton and Sir Alex Ferguson, both of whom who have no executive say in decision-makings at Manchester United and are there essentially for show, um, none of the real board members have ever been employed by a football club before they became board members at Manchester United. So they do need, there is an argument that a director of football, someone added to that board, who is a football specialist, who knows the transfer market inside out, who knows how to organise and run a club, is important to them or will be important to them going down the line. When they took Jose Mourinho, um, they essentially went back to the Sir Alex Ferguson model of one of the very few managers left in modern football who can both coach and manage, i.e. manage, be the director of football, take on all those roles. And that's what Mourinho has done. He, I mean, the interview uh, he gave me uh, around this time last year, one of the first things he talked about was how he had to um, change the, the infrastructure of the club and upgrade things. Uh, like the medical department, um, deal with the scouting department, deal with recruitment, and and was prepared to do all of those things. And and those in you know in most clubs these days are handled handled by a director of football, with the manager actually just being a coach dealing with the first team. Um, interestingly, Manchester United looked at hiring a director of football um, while they were in that interim period of deciding if they were going to sack Louis van Gaal 
when they were going to sack him and what they were going to replace him with. Because Mourinho had to wait a long time, remember, to get that job. He signalled to Manchester United that he was interested in doing it, but they did not appoint him. And there was a lot of internal dispute within the board over the, the right direction to go. I don't think it's any coincidence that um, the idea of a director of football is being floated just after a window in which um, Manchester United fans are extremely unhappy about the performance of the board, that, that the gross spend of the club was 77 million euros and you know leaving them in ninth place in the Premier League. So it, it does suit the club to go back to that idea of director of football and have names like um, Fabio Paratici at Juventus and Monchi at AS Roma circulated as potential candidates. Um, what I would say is, and, and, and also having it emphasised how rigorous their, um, their recruitment process will be and that no stone will, will go unturned in, uh, in finding the right man, what I would say is that Ed Woodward did something like this. He didn't go as far as appointing director of football, but he did completely overhaul the scouting department when he came into the club. And um, he essentially uh, used a London recruitment company, not sports specialists, to come up with a list of, uh, of scouts, top scouts, uh, that United should hire. And they ended up with a, an incredibly top-heavy department of over 50 scouts, um, which I talk to a lot of people in football about and they are they're shocked at the way that department operates and the way it was appointed um the number of people involved in it they feel like it's ridiculously overstaffed um for for the needs of a club like manchester united and the way modern scouting is done so i think i'd put an asterisk against the director of football recruitment process and and say that you would want to see them being a lot more um astute in how they go about appointing football specialists this time, if they're going to do it, then they were with the scouting department they put in place and certainly not go to um, a London recruitment company and ask them and pay them a lot of money to, to come up with uh, what they say will be the best director of football in European football. Moving to North London and Spurs, they have held on to their manager in this transfer window by the skin of their teeth after interest from Real Madrid. No players have been brought in and their brand new stadium has been delayed. Is it fair to characterise this, Ian, as a pretty poor, frustrating window for Daniel Levy and Spurs? Not for Daniel Levy, uh, I think, uh, Johnny. I think Daniel Levy's very happy. I think they committed in the region of around 40 to 50 million pounds in salary upgrades for their key players um, before the World Cups uh, began. So Harry Kane, Deli Ali, Christian Eriksen, Hoyman's son all signed new deals um, before. And as you mentioned, Mauricio Pochettino, the, the, the glue that holds that squad together, also signed a new contract and was dissuaded by Daniel Lee from joining Real Madrid. I don't believe that it was a bad window for Spurs in that sense. Having um, been party to many elite dressing rooms uh, during my time in football, uh, there are certain players who welcome competition, um, but those are your elite players. And in the case of Spurs, that would be Kane, Ali and Eriksen, um, I would say, who want to see the club progress by recruiting new players because they are very um, safe and solid in their belief that their place in the team 
is, you know, that the old cliche first on the team sheet. And those three players would certainly be first on the team sheet along with Hugo Lloris at Tottenham. Um, but so, so other players coming in to improve the squad would be welcome to them. However, other players at Tottenham right now, um, for instance, Kian Trippier, who had an outstanding World Cup with England, uh, would be very happy that he's not being challenged on, uh, on his uh, place in the team. And so for him, he will be quite happy to uh, basically come back to um, England and uh, take up the place that he left off uh, last season. And from that perspective, I think Spurs' business... Um, and we've got to remember as well that you know, in the last 10 years, um, Spurs have been seen as a selling club almost year after year. We saw them lose their best player... Uh, on the last day of the window uh, for a huge amount of money. And, we're, you know, obviously Gareth Bale, Luka Modric um, were two examples of, of that. However, the stadium is a very much different and very much more significant matter of negativity in this whole story. Because Daniel Levy and the Spurs board promised not just the fans... But Mauricio Pochettino and the players, they'd be playing in a brand new 62,000-seater stadium by the 2018-2019 season. We've heard um, drip feeds of problems in the construction, etc., etc., which have been going on now for the past six to nine months. Um, and that has been uh, a distraction for them. We saw the, the season where they put their home games at Wembley last year. Um, where they failed to replicate the title challenge that they have managed to produce in the two previous seasons. Um, and again, look, no one can say w with any certainty that it was because it was Wembley or whatever else. But what you can say with absolute fact is that when you look at statistics borne out through decades of research and statistics, that teams tend to win more points at home than they win away. So if you're effectively playing your your home games away from home, then your title challenge will be affected. What we've learned both today and over the last couple of weeks is that Spurs have had to take alternative, um, let's just say, put in, put in place alternative arrangements for home games to be played at Wembley up until the end of October. Now, in a way, that's worse than playing the whole season at Wembley because at least you know what's in front of you. When your preparation starts... And you think you're going to be playing away early and then you're not. And then you're playing at Wembley and then it's Wembley for the first two home games. And maybe it's the third and maybe it's not. Maybe it's the fourth. And then maybe you're coming back to White Hart Lane. And again, it's very disruptive for the manager and for his players. Um, and that will definitely affect their, their ability to challenge for, for trophies this season, specifically the Premier League title. So I think that um, this has been mismanaged uh, by by Levy, uh, I know that um, construction work is never, um, you know, a kind of a, a set thing. You can never guarantee that something's going to be delivered on time. However, um, I do think that come the end of the season, should Spurs finish with a disappointing campaign, whether it be Champions League, Cup campaigns, or, or Premier League, or all of the above, then Pochettino will be within in his right to say to Levy, look. I put my faith in you. You said I couldn't move to Real Madrid. You promised me this, this and this. You didn't deliver on any of it. Now, if I want to, and there's no guarantee, as we know, that Julian Loptegui will survive more than a season at Real Madrid, 
Now it's my turn. I get to choose what I do because you didn't deliver for me. And I think of all the things that have happened to Spurs in the last month, two months, in terms of lack of transfers, uh, upgrades of contracts and the stadium thing, that what happens this time next year with Pochettino will be key to, if you like, the results and the um, consequences of what's happening right now. I think um, Pochettino's press conference this week was interesting where he was obviously asked about not having any players come in and he um, pointed out and said that the stadium wasn't a £400 million project, it was a £1 billion project. He, he wanted clearly wanted to underline how much of the club's resources had gone into the stadium rather than the squad that he's expected to deliver trophies with. And he wants to deliver trophies with. I mean, they, he was very pointed at the end of last season, uh, talking about how it's time for um, Tottenham to go to another level. I think Ian's right in that Daniel Levy has, um, from his perspective, so far, it's been a successful uh, transfer window for him in that he's retained all of his top players. Um, he's not quite out of the woods there in that um, where Paris Saint-Germain, for example, to go through with proposed move for Christian Eriksen. Um, they could be a, a, a big decision for him to make as to whether he would retain Eriksen or who's so far refused to sign a new contract and getting to the stage where he could force a move um, uh, certainly in the next uh, summer transfer window. Um, whether a big offer for him was to come in, they would take it. And, um, you know, Christian Eriksen is going to almost certainly move to a bigger club uh, before too long. So Levy will have to factor that in. He hasn't been as successful in moving players out. So Toby Alderweireld was clearly for sale. Um, and uh, Levy was hoping that he could cash in in the same way as he did with Kyle Walker a year ago and get a big fee from a Premier League rival for a player who uh, was refusing to extend his terms at Tottenham at a level that Levy was happy paying. Um, so Alderweireld's still there. Um, you have a question mark over how, how Tottenham will handle him, given that Levy instructed that Alderweireld be used less in the first team, in the same way that Kyle Walker was used less in the first team in the months uh, leading up to his sale. In a, in a kind of way of, uh, of, of pushing the issue and, and moving on a player that Levy considered to be expendable and um, a valuable individual to sell. To sell. He also hasn't managed to um, turn any revenue from Danny Rose, another player who has been not quite scrap heaped, but certainly sent to the periphery of the squad um, for uh, pushing for a move. So from the Levy perspective, they're both negatives in the sense that they, he was hoping to bring money in. I think there's another issue with the stadium, um, which fits in around, obviously Tottenham supporters are not happy with, with a transfer window in which they spend no money on new players, uh, with, after the manager uh, stating that he wanted new players. But I think he's got an additional problem there in the, in the scale of price increases that are involved with the, the new White Hart Lane, although it's not going to be the new White Hart Lane for once um, once he manages to sell naming rights for it. Um, and that, again, is something he's going to have to handle very carefully because if you push the, the prices up too high for a new stadium where you're trying to sell significant extra capacity um, 
at a period in which the fans aren't happy with performances, maybe you don't sell those tickets. And then the, the, the books on what has become, according to Pochettino, a £1 billion stadium build um, look even worse um, than you expected them to be. And that, of course, can feed back into the team um, uh, what contracts you're able to offer players you want to keep and what money you're able to spend on, on buying uh, new players in the future. So it's, it's, it was always going to be this way with a project to that scale. But it is, I think it is quite delicately poised at the moment. Um, and this, this season in which you have um, a lot of teams competing for Champions League places um, and no guarantees for anyone um, could be pivotable, pivotal for Tottenham. You look at the players you've mentioned there, Duncan, Danny, Rose, Toby Alderweireld and Kyle Walker in terms of the way they were edged out of the squad. Does that start to make Spurs an unattractive proposition for agents and players, big names, in terms of arriving at the club in future? I don't think they've been an attractive proposition for big names. I don't think they sign big names. I mean, that, that's one of Mauricio Pochettino's complaints is that most of the players they have signed have been um, in a, a younger age bracket with the idea that they have the potential to become big names and major stars in European football. And to be fair to Tottenham, they have done that well. You know, they, they have signed, for example, Victor Wanyama. They got into the club. Um, OK, Wanyama's had injury problems recently, but I think with Wanyama, they got a top defensive midfielder who would, would fit into any of the... Um, of the top four clubs midfield straight away for a good price, um, so th- I don't think it, it, I don't think the, the the strategy has changed, and I don't think the appeal has changed, and I don't think I don't think that's going to happen either because I don't think Levy is going to put the money on the table to compete directly with Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool um, for that that class of players. I think that's a, you know a long way down the line. Um, if the stadium project works, if they sell well, if they manage to win a title, if they manage to completely um, overhaul the revenues of the club and, and put them on on, a, on on the same kind of footing as a, as a Liverpool or or a Manchester City, and that's you know that's a big ask. And Daniel Levy is a, as aware of that as anyone. The other thing about that, Duncan, as well, is that um, effectively what Levy is. I wouldn't say gambling because he's not he's not something like gambling money's risk averse, but he is toying with Spurs' future here. Um, I think in building the new stadium, he is guaranteeing that Spurs will be able to compete on a financial level in terms of their uh, gross revenue year in year out with the top four. But an eighteen percent rise in season tickets for any fan, any club, will cause people to wince if they don't feel they're getting value for money, i.e. they're not getting the investment from the club in terms of new players. Um, everyone knows about the lucrative nature of the of the broadcasting contract, which is the, the gift it keeps on giving to English football in the top flight. And so where Spurs see themselves, where Levy see themselves, sees Spurs in terms of challenging for the title, etc., is a little bit of a mystery to me because... He knows that Pochettino will only stay at the club as long as he thinks that they can be competitive and that they will be able to challenge for multiple trophies. And yet, they've yet to win one, you know, in, in 
you know, recent history and also certainly under Pochettino's reign. And therefore, they need to step up. They do need to elevate themselves to a level whereby they are seen as um, serial contenders in a way that, you know, they can see the North London rivals Arsenal as, as depreciating on that level. So it's a bit of a, I say it, for someone who's risk averse, it's a gamble for Levy um, to, to have responded in this way. And it will be, I think, very intriguing to see how this season plays out in terms of Pochettino, because what I don't see out there for Tottenham is a successor like Pochettino um, to take his place, if you like, um, in terms of ambition, youth and uh, vibrancy that he brings to that Tottenham squad. I think, I think you have to, there's a legitimate question to ask what the end game is. Is the end game to be a contender to win the Premier League title or is the end game to turn uh, Tottenham Hotspur into a more marketable product as a football club, i.e. is the plan for Daniel Levy um, to continue at the football club is, the, is the, the more important goal to sell Tottenham Hotspur uh, now with with that new stadium in place, which makes it far more marketable um, to what would likely be an overseas suitor, um, because what you can offer at the at present is a club that's in the Champions League, has a very good squad, has a brand new, um, very large stadium in London, and all of those things, as we we know, have been attractive to overseas buyers in the past, uh, and perhaps um, it's more important to. Uh, to be more attractive to sell as a club than it is to turn that club into Premier League contenders, real Premier League contenders with the current owner in situ. Well, one of the interesting elements of the transfer window in the Premier League uh, up until its closure was the huge spend by what we traditionally consider smaller clubs of English football. So Wolves, Fulham, Brighton, Everton and the likes who have spent significant money in comparison with big clubs like Manchester United or Tottenham. So, Ian, what's going on there? How are these clubs managing to afford such a significant transfer spend? In the case of Fulham, nearly $100 million. I'd like to start by making an analogy back to Leeds United in the very late 1990s, early 2000s, Johnny, where the broadcast money was not the same or anywhere near the same for the Premier League. Um, however, they... What they did was they put in um, a finance expert called Stephen Schechter who amortised their season ticket sales. And amortisation is a process of financing current spend by borrowing money against future income. Now, the reason I mention that is because it's exactly what we're seeing with the likes of Fulham, Wolves, Everton, Brighton or whoever, because each club currently in the Premier League will expect to earn between 160 and 180 million pounds basic just for getting out of bed on a Saturday morning from the broadcast deal for the next three years. Now, that's a huge amount of money. So therefore, when you gauge that against the money that they've spent, in film's case, I think is the most sort of eye-opening, uh, just in excess of 100 million pounds, then they're not actually spending beyond their means which, of course, famously Genetic did and then ended up in League One as a result. So as much as you know, we, we, we look at these clubs and think, how are they managing to do that? Well, it's quite simple. They can't afford to. I'm not saying it's good business practice or it's good financial uh, management, but they can afford to. And, of course, the prize at the end of it 
is to maintain Premier League status. So for Wolves and Fulham who've just came up, then that gamble is one that they feel is worth taking. In the case of clubs like Everton, and indeed Brighton as well, who stayed up in the Premier League after one season, um, the money they're spending is, again, based upon improving their situation. But such is the financial power that the broadcasting deal gives uh, Premier League clubs ahead of rivals, not just, obviously, in the EFL, but in the major leagues uh, across Europe, that they can invest sums like this without feeling the pinch in terms of... Um, and remember, these are only transfer fees paid. They're not just done, These are not the salaries given to players, which are obviously usually averaging out between 3.5 and £4 million pounds per season for a player that you're bringing in um, on a transfer of £25 million pounds plus or €25 million Euros plus. So the, it, it does get to the point where you say, well, you know, can it sustain itself? Or, or you know, what, what is the club's directive or their aim in doing so? Well, it's quite simple. The riches in the Premier League are so great that they, they want to maintain it. Um, but not only that, and I, 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 you know, I'm not one of those people who... Um, thinks that smaller clubs are being priced out of playing in the Premier League. I think that if you invest wisely and, and you invest well, then you get what you deserve. And in the case of Wolves in particular, who invested very well in their championship winning season, and in Fulham, who I believed were probably the best footballing side in the championship last season, to therefore go out and spend money and invest and um, back the managers in the case of having gotten the promotion in the first place, you know, full power to them for doing it because the, the way to, to sustain that level of success has to be investment, which, of course, is the flip side of what we've seen at much bigger clubs at Manchester and Tottenham we've already spoken about in this podcast who are complaining about the lack of signings. But, of course, Fulham, Wills, Brighton, uh, Everton are starting from a much um, smaller base in terms of talented squad. So they need to invest more to increase the, uh, the, the ability and their ability to, to, to maintain their Premier League status. So, yeah, it's just, it's just market forces. Um, and that's one thing which you know, will always um, be prevalent with regards to the Premier League because, as we know, it is better funded, um, more financially rewarding than any other league in the world. So it's, it's simply a reflection of the, of the competition within which these teams compete for them to be spending this kind of money. And as weird as it may seem that a club like Fulham spends 100 million plus or will spend 80 million plus having just been promoted, you know, that's their prerogative because they can't afford it. Yeah, I think that um, obviously the television revenue and the guaranteed money is a, is a big factor here. I think there's, there's an important um, commonality between Fulham and Wolves, and that is that both have very affluent owners. I mean, Fulham are owned by Shad Khan, who is, we saw has been trying to buy Wembley um, from the Football Association um, for a huge sum of money um, and is clearly uh, prepared to invest in top-level sport and, and retaining top-level sport in the UK. Uh, Wolves are owned by uh, Fosun, uh, a huge and affluent Chinese group um, for which 80, the £80 million spend is essentially irrelevant. What is, I think, not so well known is that um, there are rules within the Premier League on spending on wages, which to a, cent, 
to a certain degree restrict the amount you can increase your wage bill per season i.e you're only allowed to put it up not according to additional broadcast revenue but according to revenue you've um, created elsewhere for example through commercial income and the advantage that gives promoted clubs is that their wage bills are at far lower level when they come into the Premier League and there's a minimum amount um, uh, detailed in these financial fair play rules for the Premier League which every club is allowed to spend up to so the uh, likes of Wolves and Fulham come in with a lot of headroom on their wage bill for the Premier League rules and I, I think that's essentially what you're seeing happening here they're taking up that headroom on their wage bill and while taking up the headroom in the wage bill they obviously pay transfer fees for the players coming in so their transfer fee spend goes up above um, clubs who you, you would think would be on on a part of them you know the, the sort of Southamptons or Crystal Palace etc or Watford in fact if you look at Crystal Palace and Watford they're good examples because they had they really had no money to spend in this window and were dependent on sales to um, be able to buy what they had to buy. And since those financial fair play rules have come in for the Premier League, we've seen a pattern of, we used to think that the, the, the three clubs coming up would be favourites to go down. That's actually um, turned around completely and it's been years since the three clubs um, going up have all gone down. And Generally, the clubs coming up now stay up. Um, and I think a lot of it's to do with this ability to uh, sign a lot of players as they need in one window and pay them well um, to create better squads than the opposition. But, you know, looking at the spending, there's still examples of, of some, you know, crazy spends going on. Uh, uh, talking to someone post-window um, last week about Southampton, and he was just uh, stunned that Southampton had, had spent £20 million on Danny Ings, uh, a forward who has failed at Liverpool and has had two serious knee injuries in recent seasons. And that, that's kind of has, unless Southampton knows something um, about uh, Danny Ings' condition and expect him uh, to suddenly step up in performance, that kind of strikes you as some of the old-style Premier League spending of just um, really overvaluing a player, um, particularly English players, and paying way over the top for someone who is unlikely to deliver the performances you, re you require in the division. Um, and with Southampton, you know, they almost went down last year, so they actually need to get their spending right. Um, to give themselves the chance of remaining in the division this year. And now we move into our legendary quickfire rounds. And today we're going to be discussing the deal of the window. Each of the guys is going to have a top three, starting with their third, going to their second, and then their best deal of the window. Um, so, guys, we're going to start with you, Duncan. Who was your third best signing of the transfer window in the English Premier League? Well, I'm not sure it's third best signing, but what I'd like to identify is sort of three players that maybe went under the radar a little bit and um, should look to be very good value deals. And one of those um, could be a very good value deal. I think they've done very well in recruiting him in the, in the, the sense they've managed to get him for Monaco for a, a limited um, fee of around 10 million euros is a, a da, Adama Diakabi, um, a winger um, that Huddersfield Town have signed. Um, extremely talented player, creative, also physically big. Um, 
a 22-year-old does look like he has serious potential in the Premier League. The one question I would have is whether Huddersfield Town is the right place for him to be. Um, and I'm going to be intrigued to see how he how he performs for him because, and this this is one of the factors in the transfer window is you can have a really exceptional player and do a very good deal at a good price, but if you put him in the wrong team and the wrong environment, then you won't see how good the deal was or how de- how good the deal potentially could have been. So watch out for Diakabi this season, see how he does. Ian. Well, I'm going to um, contrast Duncan's under the radar um, sort of form by saying, uh, and I guarantee you this is my only big name, Naby Keita uh, to Liverpool. Um, Obviously, they've known about for a year, but I think someone who was very rightly uh, identified as being a player who could hit the ground running in the Premier League, I think we, we, we saw that already in his performance at the weekend against West Ham. He fulfilled all of the um, requirements which were expected of him and, and more. And I think that um, come the end of the season, we, I think if Liverpool continue to play well, we'll be looking at him as one of the candidates for player of the season. Yeah, it looked excellent in that game, that 4-0 win over West Ham. Uh, Duncan, what's your next choice? I think um, Diogo Dalot, um, who Manchester United picked up from Porto for €22 million, Euros, I think has the potential to be a fantastic piece of business, generally considered to be the best um, fullback of his age um, in European football. Lots of interest in him. Um, picked up very early in the sense that he just played his first senior games last season. Kind of exactly the sort of buy that uh, Manchester United have been asking Jose Mourinho to make in the sense that they're buying young with potentially huge resale value and um, buying in a category of player who can turn into a top performer um, and if it works for them could be a top performer for Manchester United for over a decade. Um, so clever business to beat the opposition to him, clever to get him at that price. Now the integration process starts to get him into the team um, and a, you know an interesting contrast to the, the stories we hear so much of, of Mourinho only wanting to buy uh, players in their late 20s and only wanting to buy ready-made players, um, which actually doesn't fit the history of what he's done at Manchester United. was something I, I wrote about in the, the transfer window column for the Daily Record last weekend, which you can find online if you'd like to have a look for it. Ian? I've certainly read that column. I thought it was uh, very interesting and insightful. Um and I'd like to think that Yves Basuma, who was a relative bargain uh, signed from Lille for Brighton Hove Albion, um, a very dynamic midfielder um, who can play as an eight, a four. He can play as 11 or seven as well. So he's incredibly um, uh, able to adapt himself to wherever his manager needs him to, to, to play. He came on as a late substitute against Watford on Saturday for Brighton and played as a 10. Um, Mali International, uh, only 22 years old, was a peer of Adama Traore um, at a football academy uh, in Mali as well and um, someone who I think will light up the Premier League this season uh, and again came in at a relatively low price, around €12 million Euros, um, but also someone who I expect to develop into being, he's all the attributes and the ability to become a very, very good Premier League player. Duncan. 
Yeah, I'll just say Basuma is one of the, the players that was um, mentioned to me as one of the top signings that uh, Premier League clubs have made this summer. So I'm also interested to see how he plays after moving from Lille. The club who I think have done fantastic business um, is Leicester City. Um, they've actually signed two top young centre-backs in a market which we all keep saying in the transfer window, it's very, very hard to find good centre-backs these days. Um, one, Philippe Benkovic, um, signed from Dino Zagreb for about 15 million is, is a more aerial physical competitor, but the one I think could be um, top, in fact, one sort of um, transfer market specialist described him to me as the potential to be the next Gerard Piquet um, is Kaglar Soyuncu. Um, Turkey international, just 22, signed from Freiburg for just over 20 million euros. Um, recommended to Manchester United uh, by Jose Mourinho. Club decided not to sign him. Um, was kind of close to going to Arsenal. I think Arsenal were keen on doing it, but decided to go for more experienced centre-backs this summer. But Leicester City have got in there um, and... You know, potentially, if they play their cards right, they've got a, an absolute top centre-back pairing um, signed and in place um, for less than €40 million. Euros and, and maybe they can sell Harry Maguire and get all that money back and more um, to and switch to what, uh, if you ask the scouts about them, the guys who, who spend their time um, and get paid for identifying the best talent, they think both of those players are better than Harry Maguire in in future. Duncan, is that a case uh, quite similarly to Kieran Tierney that we've discussed before where big Premier League club would rather see a player they've got in their sights move to a mid-level, mid-tier Premier League club and see how they perform rather and then splash the cash on them later? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure if that's exactly what happened here. I think both Arsenal and Manchester United were scared or didn't have, in Arsenal's case, didn't have the resources to go for a younger defender and, and decided to go for more experience. Manchester United obviously were being pushed to go for um, more experience defenders. Um, the idea behind Soinchu at, at Manchester United would have been if, if Josie had been allowed two centre-backs, he would have taken one um, experience ready-made. And then um, Soyuncu would have been the guy to come in and develop alongside them. That was obviously never going to happen. Um, but you're right, there is there is an element of, of the top clubs being reluctant to take a risk. And um, I'm sure that Arsenal, for example, will be very carefully watching Soyuncu's project, progress at Leicester and thinking if he does really well, then we can um, pay them a big premium on what they paid for him and try and get him to us um, in a year or two's time. Ian, your final pick. I hope it's easier to pronounce than Duncan's. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, all the, um, a lot of the onus, indeed, a lot of the um, money has been spent on goalkeepers this summer, Johnny. Obviously, Capers, world record move, £71 million to Chelsea from um, Athletic Babao, which um, even superseded uh, Alison Becker's move from AS Roma to Liverpool. But I would say the best value in the goalkeeper market this summer has been achieved by Wolverhampton Wanderers in saying Rui Patrizio, uh, Portugal international of huge amount of experience. I would um, compare him to a slightly younger Petr Cech, um, a Cech in his prime, um, because of the way that he reads the game, uh, the way that he is able to marshal a defence in front of him. And indeed, um, when you're a club like Wolves, you look to your goalkeeper 
what you want to see and what you want to predict. And of course, statisticians um, play a massive part now in uh, in the recruitment policies of football clubs is you want to see a goalkeeper who's going to effectively win you around 8 to 12 points per season in terms of his performances, clean sheets, saves, ratio, etc. I think Patrizio will do that. There is obviously still a question mark over the fee because of the um, ongoing legal dispute uh, with regards to the, uh, the um, sporting cause um, release. But I do believe that Patrizio will be, I think, a star amongst the goalkeepers in the Premier League season. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he outshone the likes of Kepa and Alisson, partly because he's going to have more to do <laughs> playing for Wolves than Alisson or Kepa will have playing for Chelsea and Liverpool, respectively. Can we get Johnny to say Kepa's surname? Just for- uh, I'd, lo- I'd love that to happen. <laughs> Kepa dude. <laughs> Kepa dude. Let's, Johnny, let's go with the um, let's go with the Aspilicueta rule. Well, the boys at Chelsea when he arrived said, "What's your name?" He said, "Cesar Aspilicueta." And that's fine. We'll call you Dave. <laughs> and seriously, and that 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 persists to this day. Okay, and with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account so everyone who follows will get a follow back. To speak to us directly, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and more importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us to reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, Thanks for listening.